Because I always tell Mama she really wants to hear there's room on the well. A little more room up here. Yeah. <laughs> Let us turn in a, an Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, before we read our main passage from the New Testament. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 12. I'll read from the... Verse 1 through verse 8. Romans 12, 1 through 8. <clears throat> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not, have all, do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our summer series on the church about how God is making a new kind of people, about how the Lord is working in us transforming us into something that is not natural. Not natural to our old selves and not natural to the world around us. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about that change in us, how the rock of our salvation is smashing all our images, displacing the old self with something new. Christ is displacing from the center, from the core of our being, he is displacing my glory and replacing it with his glory. He is displacing us from the center of ourselves. And this is the result of the, the stone, it was as, Dan, as Dan was pat, uh, preaching from Daniel chapter two, chapter 2, the stone which struck the image and became a mountain and filled the whole earth. This is transformation which 
Paul is communicating to the churches in Ephesus when in the first chapter of Ephesians he tells them that the Lord has lavished on us the riches of His grace so that we may, that we may know His purpose about making all things new, about God's plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. How is this plan to be accomplished? Paul tells us later in Ephesians 3, verse 10, that it is through the church that he is working his plan. Through the church, this messy bunch of people that we are, it is through the church, the big church and little church, even little Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church in Flintstone, Georgia. One of my former pastors, not at this church, gave this definition of the church. He said, God's, this is the church, God's plan for the ages to reach the world with the unsearchable riches of Christ. You get that? God's plan for the ages to reach the world with the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, think about that. Perhaps that doesn't hit home to you. You know, that's a big picture of church. Uh, You think maybe impersonal organization like our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. You know, that denomination we met a couple of weeks ago somewhere and they talked about the big picture. Um, Other churches, denominations like that are meeting throughout the summer talking about the big picture. So you think the church is something bigger than us. What does this have to do with you and me? And what do I have to do with the big picture? But no, the church is not that impersonal organization, but it is you and me. And all those others gathering from worship across the globe this day from sunrise to sunset. And those who have gone before us and will come after us. It is you and me in relationship, one to another, coming and going moment by moment in this thing called life. Now a few weeks ago, Ken Austin introduced us to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As he talked about the church as a transforming place. And he reminded us, because we always need to be reminded, that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. And because of Christ's mercy toward us, our calling is to be a living sacrifice. And that means a radical change. What he was telling us is that the beginning, on the beginning of the day of your salvation, a new life began that caused you to make different choices, develop different types of relationships, change the kinds of relationships you have, to think differently, to love differently, to be different. Now, a familiar term that Paul uses when he talks about us, he says, in Christ. And we're familiar with that. We Perhaps think of 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 17. Therefore if, anyone, if, therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're familiar with that verse. That's transformation. So we gather that there is this mystical union with Christ that we are not our own. 
but we belong to Christ. But there is a flip side to the coin. Yes, we are in Christ, we belong to Christ, but we also belong one to another. In our passage, Romans 12, verse 5 says, We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We teach that in our church. We've even affirmed this many, many times when we recited the, in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the what? Communion of the saints. So we say we believe in the communion of, communion of the saints. What does that mean, anyway, communion of the saints? Well, last week, if you recall, we had communion and we're the saints, so that's communion of the saints. Um, well, back in the 1600s at the gathering of the Westminster Assembly, those who were called the divines thought it important enough to define what was meant by that phrase. Matter of fact, in your hymnal, open your hymnal, in the back, yep, did you know this was back here? Page 864, chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's a chapter called Of the Communion of the Saints. This is what the divines put together, what they wrote, what they understood the term to mean. And we'll look at the first two sections. It says, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And, of course, that's union with Christ. And being united to one another, in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Now, saints, by profession, are bound to maintain an, an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who, in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. The communion of the saints. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 12, 3 through 8. But you know, as we read this, before he gets uh, to this oneness, he addresses something else first. In verse 3, he says, and we've already talked about this a little bit in, the, in my introduction. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So what Paul is telling us is that we begin, we must begin with a right view of ourselves. One translation says, do not think that you are better than you are. You must see yourselves as you really are. To think soberly, it means literally to be in, one, in one's right mind. It brings the idea of to curb one's passions, to don't be haughty or arrogant. 
And this right view of self is so important that in another place where Paul speaks about communion of the saints and speaks about spiritual gifts, he does the same thing in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on and speaks about spiritual gifts. But first, he speaks about this humility and gentleness and patience. Calls us to a true examination of, we, of who we are in Christ. Where again, just like Romans chapter 12 be, begins, we are driven to the mercies of Christ, to the contemplation of his righteousness. This is the true measure of ourselves. A true measure humbles us. And that is what Paul is getting at in the latter half of Romans chapter 12, verse 3, when he says, Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what does that mean? To be the measure of faith assigned. So you think, well, some have been given this level of faith and others another level. So maybe I don't have to be too hard on myself. I don't have as much faith as myself. You know, I, I can measure myself a little bit differently. But uh, Tim Keller, one of uh, a pastor up in many of us have heard of him, popular writer. He says, I think uh, some things that he offers some help here when he notes that it is not that one has been given more and another less faith. But Paul is talking about a standard of faith. He goes on to say the first measure or the standard by which we evaluate ourselves is the gospel we believe in. But Paul is only echoing his own, his, his own experience of meditating on the beauty and excellencies of Christ. And the first measure is that all of you have been given your saving faith in Christ. And that is how you are to measure yourselves. That means we need to realize that, first of all, we are all the same. We're all sinners, need a salvation. Then second of all, we are to think of ourselves as having distinct gifts and abilities within the body of Christ. In other words, we are different too. We are, are the same in our, standard, our standing in the gospel, but we are different in our various gifts, our various abilities to minister to one another. So we start with the right view of ourselves. Paul grew in his own understanding of who he was as he engaged the gospel. That's why he starts out in Romans chapter 1, the very first verse of Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ. That's how he sees himself. There can be no true communion of the saints until we understand who we truly are. Now, tell me, do you think of yourself with sober judgment? Are you overwhelmed, humbled by Christ's mercy? Would you describe yourselves, as Paul does, as a servant or literally a slave of Christ Jesus? It's not a slave from the standpoint of feeling, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a slave, uh, a burdened relationship. He enjoys being that slave. He rejoices in it because of his mercies. 
I'm a slave. Do you see yourself that way? Let me draw you back to the Westminster Confession of Faith for a moment. We are, it says we are united to one another in love. We are united to one another, as Paul tells us in verse 4 of Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one in Christ and individually members of one another. Oneness, unity, one body. We've heard testimony of that oneness this morning. Paul cannot stress enough the importance of the oneness of the body. In Ephesians 4, he calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the body, of the, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You and I and all who are of faith are called to a special bond, a transforming bond of love for one another. For what purpose? What purpose? When Christ was praying in the garden, what we call the high priestly prayer of John 17, he prayed to the Father and his prayer was for us. In verse 20 of John 17, he says, My prayer is for those who will believe in me through the disciples, that, the, that you will believe in me through the disciples' word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that is, you and I be in the Father and the Son, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That was Christ's prayer for us, that we may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, you know me, I, I have to mention Francis Schaeffer for some reason. I, he's someone I've uh, looked to a lot. He calls this the final apologetic. This oneness that calls us to believe and to speak, to be one so that the Father may, so the world may see that the Father is one. The final apologetic. There must be visible unity. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. We cannot believe, the world cannot believe that we are Christians if they do not see some reality of the oneness of true Christians, the final apologetic. And the unity of the body is one of the more dominant themes of the New Testament. It was so important that Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthian church. We always like to talk about the Corinthians because they, you know, they speaks about people a lot like ourselves, perhaps. In uh, first Corinthians, the first Corinthians chapter one, verse ten, he says, "I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you." That was his prayer for them. That's why he's writing the letter. They may agree, and be, that there will be no divisions. Even the, the, the letter that Paul is writing to the Roman church a church that he's never been to at that point. 
Uh, and he writes it in part to address some divisive issues in the church. Some of it over some silly things such as food. It wasn't too uh, small a thing for them. Food was a very important thing. But we look at it, perhaps it's a silly little thing. Food, yes, little things cause divisiveness. You just think about what little things cause divisiveness among us. So Paul wrote, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Do not for the sake of food destroy the works of God. In other words, that which we, the body of Christ, share in common is so much more than that which divides us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 12, there is the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God, and he says in Ephesians 4, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one. Again and again, he says, he is stressing the point of unity with an exclamation point. He's telling us that it is through us, the church, the true church in communion, that the kingdom of God comes to the ends of the earth. And let us not be hindered in God's mission. Put, put aside your peccadillos, your foibles, your likes and dislikes, and proclaim the king, thy kingdom come. He's telling us that each of us are instruments of his promise, a promise that we see goes all the way back to Genesis where he told Abraham, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. And again in 18, 18 of Genesis, he says, in you all the families of the, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we are his offspring. So we are called not to divisiveness, but to be a blessing. Because of the Lord's divine blessing to us, we are to be a blessing to others, to one another, to those of different parties, different races, different cultures, to the other ends of the earth. A blessing means to speak a good word, to bestow a benefit upon. So, are you a blessing? Or are you a curse? I hate to tell you what I've, what's about myself. You know, am I a blessing or a curse? Yes. Yes. Both. The thing is, though, is that we are one. And the second thing is that we are different. Paul says in verse 6 of Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The Lord has gifted us and so that when we use our giftedness, the world believes the Father sent the Son. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tells us, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And Peter, 1 Peter 4 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Two years ago, the last time I was up here in, in this role, I used this quote. We must 
live in such a way as to advance and enrich the sanctification of the fellow believers whom our lives touch. We grow more fully into Christ, not just by ourselves, but in and through the communion of the saints. In other words, we need each other. Whose lives do you touch? So you are not your own. You belong to Christ and you belong to one another. Which means to think differently about that person sitting next to you. Okay, look at the person next to you. Think differently about that person next to you. It means to transform the way you think about that person that you really don't like. They're so different than you. You know, you're this way and there that you just don't really like them. To think differently because you are bound together in mission. God's gifts to you are not for you alone, but for the body to function as intended and for the kingdom to flourish. We are the body of Christ. We are called to different tasks, but we are one. Paul says, again, you've got gifts. Let us use them. And he gives himself as an example of one who uses his spiritual gifts, when he, of his spiritual gifts. When he wrote to the Roman church, Romans chapter 1, back in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see, his, his whole person, matter, matter of fact, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 3, he says, for by the grace given to me, he's speaking about the spiritual gift that he has been given. Paul expressed his love for Christ and his love for the brethren through using whatever giftedness the Lord had imparted to him, that he might be a blessing to them and them to him as they exercise their spiritual giftedness. So our being a blessing to one another and to the world is expressed in the use of our giftedness. And there are various gifts. Some mentioned here in Romans 12. We've seen a list in Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And they have one aim, that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 4.11, everything God may be glorified. So we see that the variety of gifts promote unity. They reveal the transforming power of Christ to the world. And we've heard that more than one place that we who are in Christ have been given a spiritual gift that's a fact. A spiritual gift is a gift by the Holy Spirit to empower you in works of ministry of the church. It is a gift to you for you to be an expression of God's blessing. And one commentator, commentator notes that if you do not use your spiritual gifts, you will not grow spiritually. He's basically saying you are not functioning as the Lord intended. So, how many of you know what your spiritual gift is? No show of hands. Oh, yeah. One out of many. Some of you? And I guess you're beginning to wonder, what is my spiritual gift? But yesterday, your giftedness was on display through ministering to the Riley family. 
Two weeks ago, your giftedness was on display in vacation Bible school through teaching, serving, loving well, and many other ways as varied as the body. Now, in many circumstances, your spiritual gift is tied into your natural giftedness. My natural giftedness, as many of you know, my family particularly knows, analytical. Numbers are all up here. Calculations, formulas. So the Lord uses that in administrative tasks. But God calls us to stretch, to go beyond our comfort zone. To see how the Lord has gifted us. How do you know that the Lord has gifted you if you don't stretch? To move out. Try something different. Years ago now, it's been, oh, more than 10 plus years now. I was asked to work with one of our young people who desired to join the church. Uh, we didn't really have a formal process of communicants class as such. So they asked me to meet with this, this uh, little girl. Now, I'd taught Sunday school before, um, but that was different. This was one-on-one, -on -one, uh, much more relational. And there were, again, there was no pattern set to how do we, how is this to be done? How do we bring a child up to become a communicant member? So I said, well, okay. How would I know if I didn't try? So I had to use my analytical skills to develop a plan of study because we had no we had no formal, formal plan, so I developed a plan of study, still using it. But then I had to engage this young person, work on a level I'd never really tried before. Damn, I'm gray hair, they're that little. And I found great joy in it. And over the years, I've mentored many of our youth through what we call the communicants class. Even this, this very morning, Still at it today, and I rejoice in it. If I hadn't said yes, I wouldn't know. And the Lord would not, I would not have been doing the Lord's will. So what's your spiritual gift? The Lord has equipped you for your work in his kingdom to be a blessing. And so I encourage you to seek out, just like Paul, just like me, how you may impart some spiritual gifts so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you've made us each unique. all different. I thank you that you've called us as one to function as the body, to work in union, unity and community together for your glory, that the world may see, that our families may see, that our church may see, our neighbors in this community may see that the Father has sent the Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.